This nebula had such a resemblance to a comet in its form and brightness that I endeavored to find others that astronomers would not confuse the same nebula with comets. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Do 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 do. Oh yes, Charles Messier. Matt, you sounded a little, a little bit like the policeman from Hello Hello there. Ah, uh, yes. Well, I think I think it probably was a little bit intentional. Yes. On this day, two hundred and ninety years ago, one of my faves, French astronomer Charles Messier, legend. Yeah, well, do you know, last night I went out to show my guest, Phil, Saturn and Jupiter that were just coming over the hill. Are they, uh, is that a euphemism or? Uh, well, uh, luckily I didn't say Uranus or, or anything like that. Okay, so I was showing sure. him Saturn and Jupiter. He'd never seen them through a scope before. Did it blow his mind? Yeah, it blew his mind, wow. obviously. There we go. They were still, you know, a lot of atmosphere in the way because they're, they're quite low down at the moment. But right to the right of it was um, a globular cluster, one of the Messier objects. M22 Beautiful. is what we ended up looking at. And it just looks like a smudge, really. But yeah. but it's quite nice seeing Saturn and Jupiter right next to each other at the moment. It's a beautiful thing. And let me tell you, Matt, Charles mm-hmm. Messier would have been very excited <laughs> by a smudge back in the day, wouldn't he? Reason why Messier is famous, particularly amongst amateur astronomers, is because the list of Messier objects is normally the kind of list that you start to sort of go through and look at through a telescope, and partic- in particular, photographs. So all those beautiful photographs you see by amateur astronomers are often yes. Messier objects, objects that Charles Messier basically thought if you've got a small enough scope, you could you can look out for comets. There's no point having a massive scope looking for comets because they're so bright and big that you can find them anywhere. You can often find right. them with binoculars, in fact. Um but so he went through and and found all these nebulas that people might mistake as comets and wrote them all down so people didn't think that they were seeing comets, that they were actually seeing these little smudges. Ah, That's all he could okay, see. Okay. Um, uh, Herschel went on to, with a bigger scope, catalogue far more objects, but it kind of they're not the kind of objects that could be confused with um, comets. So Messier was, you know, quick to point out that his catalogue was very, very useful for that particular purpose of not getting confused with um, comets. So, yes, a very well-known catalogue of astronomical objects. And talking of catalogues, on the same day, June the 26th, in 1932, unfortunately was the unfortunate death of Adelaide Ames, who you might have heard of from the Shapley Ames yes. catalog and I she was uh, before, yeah she yes. was one of these people that uh, surveyed the sky and uh, created a catalog of galaxies in actual fact that were brighter than 13th magnitude and this was known as the Shapley Ames catalog and uh, she could consider Cecilia Payne Kaposhkin as one of her close friends wow what a pair so yes, that's uh, so cat- it's it's obviously a day of catalogers, a birth of one of the greatest and a death of one of the greatest. So, cheers to Messier and Ames. Well, that's fantastic. And Matt, would you like a bit of good news to start off the show? 
Give me a bit of uh, good news. Give me a, get a well, bit of good news. Well, over at NASA, uh, they said last Wednesday that they're going to be renaming its Washington headquarters after its first black female engineer, Mary Jackson. Of course, some of you may remember from the hit film, Hidden Figures. If you haven't seen it, please go and check it out. It's a wonderful thing. So that's great, Excellent. isn't it? It's quite awesome. Uh, very, t- very timely gesture, I would suggest. Yes, completely. Very needed at the moment. What's, let me ask you, Matt, what's Musk up to? NASA have been uh, singing Musk's praises this week because the Dragon capsule has been performing ever so well and they're very pleased with it. The solar panels, for example, are producing way more power than expected, which means it can stay at the station for a lot longer. However, it doesn't look as though Bob and Chunky are going to be stopping for a sort of long-term mission, oh. even though they have the training to do so. It looks like they'll be brought back down on August the 2nd so that they can speed up the sort of validation process of the Dragon capsule so they can start using it for just normal operations. It's like once you get it down, check it over, yep, good to go, and that, then it will be part of the you know fleet taking people up to the International Space Station. Damn, they've done very well, SpaceX, haven't they? That is yeah. something to be proud of. What's going to be extraordinary, of course, is for the last nine years or so, we've, we've just been used to people returning to the Russian steppes, parachuting yeah. down and that little explosion just before it hits the ground, and then a bunch of rough Rus- Russian blokes rolling the capsule around and dragging the astronauts out and putting them into rubbish deck chairs and all that kind of nonsense. We're not, we're not going to see that. We're not going to see that. Yes, yeah, so that's such, such a good point that no one talks about. Why aren't the chairs better? It's yeah, like, welcome well, back to this planet that you call home. Is a crappy old deck chair. It is quite funny how they, they, these are obviously highly trained people, These the, the Russians that go out and do it, but they... They do look like a bunch of rough builders when they're doing all that work. It's quite. I do I like mean, it. I, I, I like at the least for that give a, at least give them a cushion. But of course, this one we're going to see the return of sea returns. So the capsule dropping oh. into the sea and being fished out by large boats. So that's either going to happen in the coast Love of it. Florida, or coast <laughs> of Florida, Florida, the coast of Florida, or the Gulf of Mexico. Floridor sounds like a Harry Potter character. Unlike Flow Rider, that sounds like something else. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that actually is a rapper. Yeah, Flow Rider. Flow Rider. Yeah. yeah. If it's not, I'm going to be Flow Rider from now on. Relativity space. What are we saying about them? Well, this is quite a good one. So, yes, they've just they've just landed another ma- a pretty major contract and but this is interesting. This is actually Reasonably new, only founded in 2015 by Tim Ellis and Jordan Noon. It's an American sort of private company, but yeah, but you often see pictures of their 3D printer, this enormous metal sintering machine uh, that points lasers at powdered metal and and can build very large objects. And 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 the, the, the when you see it, it is the most impressive 3D printer you've ever seen. It's just absolutely genius. Um, but they're trying to 3D print uh, rockets, essentially. Beautiful. Wow. Iridium, who are obviously an enormous communication satellite network, they have these Next satellites. And, of course, um, 75 Next satellites have gone up on Falcon 9s. So seven Falcon 9 launches launch 75 Next satellites up. Got it. They, they've got six spare ones on the ground. 
I think six of the ones that went up are actually spares anyway, or nine or something like that, that the spares yeah. in space that they can move around and replace broken ones. But they've got six spare ones on the ground so that they can, at any one point, launch them and put them into a position to, to keep the network working at, at its optimal level. But what it's they don't want to do... Is not is just do these on single Falcon Nine launches like they put mm. the the other seventy five up on seven Falcon Nine launches. So what they that they want a, the exact size rocket to take up one next satellite and pop it into a very distinct orbit for the cheapest amount of money possible. And of course, this happens to be the sweet spot where Relativity Space are building their rocket called the Terran One. Now, the Terran 1, get this, is 95% 3D printed. And the, the company what? hoped to be able to wow. print these rockets in 60 days. So you, you press print on your computer. 60 days later, you walk into the warehouse and there's a rocket being printed. And uh, it uses 3D printed Aeon 1 engines, which are a methane liquid oxygen type engine with only 100 parts. Would I potentially have space for one in my garage i mean if i if i press print set no, it up in there might be a little bit too big for your garage but yeah it could carry a jamie franklin into space quite happily it's like one and a quarter tons to low earth orbit so in, i could i could actually launch my rover 75 into low earth orbit for, <laughs> for only it's not quite the tesla is it no for only tw- shut it jamie of course it's way better than a tesla for only 12 million dollars which i think so absolutely this 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 rocket is pretty perfect good. for what iridium want it's because Electron, for example, is just a bit too small. It wouldn't be able to carry one of these next satellites up. They're just slightly mm. too big. But, and of course, the Falcon 9 is way too big, way too big. But yeah, this Terran, which is actually like a mini Falcon 9, it's got nine of these Aeon engines on the bottom and, and one first stage engine as well. And uh, it's only $12 million. So by 2023, we might see the relativity space um, rocket being used for exactly that, the Terran 1. So that's, uh, I think that's a really cool little story. I think that's there. way cool. I'm with you. And maybe Relativity Space might bring one of their 3D printed rockets over to the UK to be launched from Sutherland Spaceport that, did, that got its Let's planning permission. Let's bloody hope so. It got its planning permission. It actually went through. So that is that's so looking good. very, very promising indeed. Thank God. It's limited to something like 12 launches a year because of the waste going into, into the sea, basically. So if Orbex and, say, Lockheed Martin with their Electron are able to uh, do what they say they want to do, and that's reuse them, yeah. then maybe the cadence can go up from 12 to a higher number. But that's really cool news uh, from, from uh, Sutherland Spaceport there. Really cool so, news. Congratulations. So the, congratulations. So well well done, Orbix, uh, for pushing that one through. And I was worried about that. That's made me happy. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. So uh yeah, we'll have to st- we'll ha- we'll 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 have to get our seats booked on the next Ryanair flight to Inverness Airport, Jamie. So let's definitely uh, keep have an to get eye out Chris for back it. on the line. Give us a comment. Yeah, absolutely. So uh Jamie. Yes. I thought that this was an interesting story that came into the feed that we could have a quick 
tackle before I before I introduce you to this week's guest, who is John Professor John Kiss, who is a oh, biologist yes. who's had lots of his little plant experiments fly up onto several different space stations. I'm excited he's, about he's this. Absolute legend. Re- I really enjoyed talking to him as well. He was really lovely and and uh, great ending as well. He's got he's got a great pick for the uh, space playlist. So listen on for John Kiss later on in the show. Here we go. But um, uh, before we deal with that, I we have to talk about black holes and neutron stars again. Matt, I would be annoyed if you if you didn't. So there's a there's a mystery, Jamie. Something that needs a little bit of clearing up, a little bit of a dispute between yeah. astronomers, and it's a, it's basically about minding the gap. So astronomers, when they oh. get off at a, a tube station and they say mind the gap, it it might mean something else to them. And just a bit, there's a, yeah. there's a, there's a kind of mass gap where neutron stars get to about two two to two and a half times the mass of the sun right. and that seems to be their absolute limit and if you went past that you'd expect them to collapse into black holes but they've never found a black hole with a mass below five solar masses right. even though they found quite a few there seems to be this gap between the two and a half solar masses and five solar masses and and, and the question is can when a star collapses, can it form a black hole that's between three and five solar masses, or, or is it just naturally that just won't happen? In other words, when a star collapses, when if it collapses into a black hole, does it keep more of the mass because it's got this event horizon, and therefore the lowest mass it could have is five solar masses? And when a neutron Sweet star Lord. remains a neutron star. Um, it it can only get up to about you know two and a half solar masses before it stu- before it would hood- would have become a black hole and therefore retained more of its mass and ended up as five solar masses. And so, is there naturally this gap, this mass gap between two and a half and five solar masses? So that's that's a question that they've been asking. Is it a natural gap? Is is there really a mass gap? Is there a dip? Is there just a little bit of a dip of black holes there, or is there just a straightforward distribution of masses that of supernova remnants that that go right through the mass range, and that it's more of a measuring problem? It might well, just I'm- be that we're just measuring. It's just that they're harder to see, and therefore we haven't seen them. Well, I'm pleased you brought this up, Matthew, because as you know, this is the kind of question that keeps me awake at night. Well, I, well this is so. The, you did. I'm mention hoping this. we can put it. I hope, hoping we can uh, put it to bed today, uh, so well, to speak. We just talked about the uh, interplanetary podcast space song playlist, and mm-hmm. there is a song called Cygnus X One on there by the rock band Rush. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, yes, sick, back in 1964, a sounding rocket, uh, which is like one of these small rockets. Wait, are these the lyrics? No, or? no, these aren't, the, these oh, okay. aren't the lyrics. No, no. Back uh, in 64, a sounding rocket took off from White Sands. No, no, it's not. That's not the lyrics. No, the lyrics oh. are a bit more ethereal than that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yes, a sounding rocket took off from White Sands in New Mexico. And yes, I know you've been there, Jamie. Or Big have time. You? I don't like yeah, talking no, about yeah, it. Yeah, shut it. So 
and it was carrying a Geiger counter. So as it span, as this rocket sort of goes into its spin, the Geiger counter was able to take readings. And one of the reasons why it was doing this is because X-rays are absorbed by Earth's atmosphere. And to get this sounding rocket just out of the atmosphere and spin it round, they were able to do an X-ray map of the, of the sky. And wow. in doing so, they revealed an extremely bright spot in X-ray that became Cygnus X1. And everyone thought, ooh, wonder what that is. And then move forward six years, and NASA launched the Uhuru satellite. Oh, yeah. Uhuru satellite. And that discovered 300 more of these X-ray sources. But Uhuru is Swahili for freedom. Did you know that? Didn't know that. And the reason why they chose Swahili is because the sounding rocket actually took off from an Italian facility near Mombasa. So that really sort of extended the observation of Cygnus X1. And what it actually showed was there was fluctuations in the X-ray intensity that was coming off uh, Cygnus X1 that was varying lots of times every second, a lot of variance in this signal. Now, that means, because you've got this rapid variation, that the energy must be coming from a smaller area because the speed of light means that you can't have something, you know, oscillating if it can't send the information from one place to another on its own surface. So they knew that this area must be as small as 100,000 kilometers. Hmm. But just put that into perspective, the sun, the the diameter of the sun disk is about 1.4 million kilometers across. So the sun Jeez. is significantly larger than this incredibly bright X-ray source, right? So this is getting exciting. So in 1971, Luke Braze and George K. Miley from the Leiden Observatory um, uh, detected radio waves coming from Cygnus X1. Wow. They were able to accurately position and pinpoint this X-ray source to the star AGK2 plus 351910. Oh, what? You mean HDE 226868? That's the one. Yeah, that's the one. Near Eta Signi. I've got that tattooed on my arm. Only from our point of view, of course. And that is a super giant star. So, this is a super giant star that would not be capable of putting out these X rays. We know that the stars like that don't behave like that. So they knew that the star must have a binary, a companion, um, that was heating up gas that it was ripping off this star and producing the radiation that was the source of this Cygnus X1 radiation. And in pop, at this point of the story, Louise Webster and Paul Merdin from the Royal Greenwich Observatory and, oh, yeah. And they announced that they'd actually discovered this hidden companion. And using Doppler shift, in other words, looking at this large supergiant and, and the change in colour from the fact that it's being pushed and pulled by its companion star, they were able to um, determine that this object was way more massive than a neutron star. And everyone would say, well, what's small and more massive than a neutron star? And so by 1973, everyone was now in agreement that this was 
Dun, dun, Drum roll. Our first black hole. Get in. And of course, since then, the, uh, Cygnus X1 has been extensively um, researched and looked at because it's a very near and very active black hole. It's a, it's almost like a mini quasar. So it's a bit like the these supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies, except a mini version. It's got jets and everything. So they're able to wow. sort of use that to to get huge insights into other black holes and quasars. So Cygnus X1 is very, very important to astronomers. So that's a little bit of, a, of the history. And, of course, roll on roll on to today, and we know, we know hundreds of black holes, if not thousands of candidates for black holes. Yeah, we do. We've got the knowledge that virtually every single galactic centre has a supermassive black hole at the centre. And ever yeah. since LIGO and Virgo have switched on, we've been watching the merger of, Lots of black holes and lots of candidates for black holes as well. So we know there's lots of them out there, and we're now getting more and more ways of finding them and detecting. Them. Of course, they're hard to detect because they're black, which isn't helpful mm. particularly. Doesn't. Um, so why is it that we've never seen a, with all this information? We've never seen a black hole with a mass less than five solar masses. So why would that be? So, is, so do stars? Stars don't have that mass gap, as in stars smoothly go up in mass uh, along the spectrum. So when they collapse, you'd expect them to create neutron stars, and then when they get too heavy, you'd expect them to make black holes. So maybe the mass gap is a thing, and maybe not. Uh, and there are, of course, some neutron stars that are so massive that as their spin slows down, they will collapse into black holes because they've no longer got this, this yeah. spinning pressure holding them up. Sure. So, so that, that's quite exciting. So one theory suggests that, you know, that stars, when they go supernova, the, the cores collapse. But if they tip, if they actually have a, a black, if they have an event horizon, that actually means that they hold on to more of the mass. So you end up with this much larger five solar mass object. Um, whereas neutron stars, they, 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 they don't hoover up as so much matter as they, as, they absolutely, as they collapse, and a lot of that matter escapes as a supernova explosion. So right. they, they end up getting a maximum of three solar masses, and there's nothing in between. But other, other theorists dispute that and say there really isn't a fundamental difference between an object that can form an event horizon and one that doesn't. So, oh. so, so the race is on to sort of prove whether this is there really is a mass gap. So, August two thousand and seventeen, Jamie, we we obviously had this on the podcast at the time. Was Big the time. was the start of multi messenger astronomy, and this is where two neutron stars merge together in what is now known as a killer nova. I mean, come on, that not is just a so supernova. But a killer nova, and a killer nova is pretty much the cause of of all the heavy elements that we see around us, like gold and platinum and all those sort of things, are made in these yeah. ridiculous events where neutron stars smash into each other and and merge into. Uh, well, this one merged, seemed to merge for a fraction of a second into a giant neutron star before collapsing almost instantly into a black hole. Now, what was the mass of this new black hole? Is it in the mass? Is it in this mass gap? It certainly was. So this merged neutron star ended up being about two point seven five solar masses, which is which is in this kind of mass gap. Right. Um, but 
it's still not caused by stellar collapse. It, it's caused by neutron star mergers. So it, it kind of still suggests that there still might be this mass gap caused by, you know, uh, by supernova and, and stellar collapse rather than just the odd black hole caused by neutron stars that have merged together. Uh, but then we had the huge neutron star that was discovered a few months ago. We had that on the show. Oh, oh I remember. Uh, yeah, yeah. Chomping into the mass gap at the bottom end so that you could get neutron stars that were heavier than people thought. Uh, but in November, there, a paper came out called A Non-Interacting Low-Mass Black Hole Giant Star Binary System by Todd A. Thompson. It shows pretty convincing evidence that there's this rapidly rotating giant star. Yes. And I'm not going to say its name because it's it's the most ridiculous one ever. Has oh. a companion that's in the region of 2.6 to 5 solar masses. So th this, com this companion must be in this mass gap area. And the companion is dark and unseen. So it's highly likely to be a black hole. So they think that they found a black hole near uh, that is a binary with this giant star although some astronomers suggested it might be two low brightness stars that were a binary in itself the but todd et al dispute that and and say no that that's not right they've got the maths wrong so they're pretty convinced there's a black hole in this mass gap um size but of course that doesn't really solve it because of course that black hole could have been formed in a kilonova as well so the right. very double, double bluff. So it's a double double bluff, yeah. So in the very latest discovery in a paper that came out this week called Gravitational Waves from the Coalescence of a 23 Solar Mass Black Hole with a 2.6 Solar Mass Compact Object. Right. So there's 2.6. If you are not reading that, then what the then, heck? What that? What are you doing? I mean, seriously, you need to check your lockdown. Yeah, R. Abbott et al. And when I say et al, there's so many people. International effort just does not cover how many people are involved yeah. in doing these kind of papers. So um, there was a th the third observing run of the LIGO-Virgo um, gravitational wave detectors was on August the 14th, 2019, and they spotted a merger between a huge 23 solar mass black hole. So that's a big one. That's some big bad boy out there. And something in the region of 2.6 solar mass, uh, it, it merged with something like that. So that's the most uneven merger ever detected. But it also beats another record in the fact that it's either the lightest black hole or the heaviest neutron star ever discovered in a double compact object system. So, God damn. Yeah, the, the only annoying thing is the merger is so far away that even though no light was detected, which would which would kind of suggest it was a black hole, it's so far away they may not have seen the X-ray burst that would have come from quark stars or neutron stars being swallowed quark by stars. this a quark star as we talked about a few weeks ago when neutron yeah. stars get even more compacted they, the the neutron itself starts to break up into a quark soup, and uh, yeah, so it 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 it's a little bit ambiguous about whether this is an enormous quark star or a black hole, but it does seem highly likely that it's a black hole, and 
And from a, a whole bunch of maths and a whole bunch of inference, the combination of its mass ratio, the component masses, the inferred merger rate as well. So the fact that they've seen one of these events is a massive challenge for this current model that there's a mass gap and the mass distribution of compact object binaries. So, wow. yeah. so th I this, hope th it is a black hole, Matt. Yeah, so it, it really might be. And, and it's... It's the fact that it's one of the lightest black holes ever discovered or the most massive neutron star discovered kind of is cool either way. Um, but just based on the fact that the, the rate density, which is like a real kind of inferred rough estimate, they reckon that they should see another of these events within the next couple of years. And in which yeah. case um, it, it, it should... If they do, it will be a really strong hint of a larger population of black holes that lie in this um, mass gap. So that's a very, very important and interesting thing that came out. And it's you know, yeah, it's all based on theory. Just I mean, just think about it, Jamie. In my lifetime, there was no such thing as black holes, and then suddenly there it was like, no, Cygnus X1 really is a black hole. This isn't like theoretical stuff from Einstein. They yeah, actually, exactly. They actually, actual they actually seem to exist. Amazing, huh? God damn. Incredible stuff. Wow. Beautiful. So, Jamie, would you like to listen to Mr. John Kiss? I would like nothing more. Hey, what a great surname that is as well. Oh, come on. Prince wrote a song about him. Exactly. A cootie. Let's roll it. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. I'm joined on the podcast by John Kiss, who's a professor of biology and a dean at the UNC Greensborough College of Arts and Science. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So before we start, where, whereabouts is Greensboro? Am I saying that right? UNC Greensboro? You are. Uh, and it's named for uh, a revolutionary army officer, Nathaniel Green. Uh, we're in sort of central North Carolina in the, uh, in the Piedmont region. So uh, past the coastal plain, but before the, uh, before the mountains, it's a it's a lovely place to live. For for a Brit, that sounds like it's a nice place for some reason. It, it has that <laughs> kind of has that feel. So before we get into the nitty gritty about you know that the work that you currently do and the work you've been doing, looks like all your life as well. You know, it's um, uh, how did you what, what give us a little detail about your journey into actually getting where you are now? What what was the sort of journey you well, took? <laughs> I, I guess I'll start in the beginning. Uh, so I was born in 1960 and. Pretty much my life is the space age. It depends. That's about when it all started. And so I was nine years old when uh, Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. And I remember as a little boy that had a profound effect on me. It was, it was really uh, quite an amazing thing. Uh, and the East Coast of the United States, we got to stay up really late. It's really cool for a nine-year-old and saw these shadowy <laughs> figures on the moon. So I've always been interested in the space program. Um, I'm a botanist or plant biologist. And after I got my um, PhD degree from Rutgers University, I have to say it was largely by, by chance. I was looking for a postdoctoral position. And I noticed that there was this uh, interesting one at Ohio State University that was funded by NASA. It was strictly for ground-based work. 
And that was in 1987. And ever since 1987, I've been involved um, with NASA at some level. Uh, I've been very fortunate. I've had, um, uh, once I became an independent faculty member, assistant professor, um, I was accepted for a spaceflight project with NASA. And I've had, um, I've had eight spaceflight projects in my career, which, which is a, a very fortunate thing. Um, seven of the eight actually were in collaboration uh, with uh, NASA and the European Space Agency. Oh, wow. So um, that's been also an interesting part of the project that's made my life more interesting. So yes, what's what? Tell us about the, fir- the the very first project that you got involved in. Then, what 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 was what was the project? So the the first the first spaceflight project. I was a pretty much a new assistant professor, and uh, as all scientists, I were I was applying for all of these um, grants, grant opportunities, and um, I almost didn't apply for the the, the grant that I got. Um, I tell grad students this this story as a uh, I think I had like four applications pending to the National Science Foundation, ground-based work for NASA, and there was the spaceflight project that was a, um, a cooperation between NASA and the European Space Agency, and actually the Russian Space Agency was involved. And I thought I would never have a chance. And at the last minute, I decided to apply, and it was successfully peer-reviewed. And it turns out it, I had the appropriate preliminary data. And the panel was uh, very excited about my my work. Um, I was pretty upfront in that I had no spaceflight experience, and uh, I said that if um, if I, if it were accepted, I would seek out mentors from from primarily from France, and um, they liked that I was open about my limitations and and found that very refreshingly honest, and and they selected me, and I ended up doing the things I said I would do. There's certainly a few lessons in there, isn't there? <laughs> yes. Hopefully, you know, hopefully your students uh, take note. So, yeah, what, what was the name of the mission and what, what did, you, did you achieve anything exciting out of the results? So, so the, the, first, uh, the first project, it was called the BioRack Project, and it was um, part of the uh, shuttle to Mir missions. So Mir uh, was uh, the former Russian space station and um, in an effort in the, in the 1990s, in an effort to lead up to the International Space Station, uh, I think there are eight, American, eight or nine American astronauts that um, eventually stayed on Mir, and they were brought there by the space shuttle. And uh, because of that opportunity, there was some extra room for these scientific experiments. Um, the, the result, the study we did was on um, how plants perceive uh, gravity and gravity perception. And ironically, we, we took away gravity uh, by flying in low Earth orbit. And um, we added back gravity at various levels with an onboard centrifuge. And um, we kind of confirmed this model. It was called the starch statolith hypothesis. Uh, by um, some uh, unique, by, by using a very unique approach. So yeah, plants presumably don't like a lack of gravity. Is that is, is that kind well, of where you ended I, up? I don't think or is it more true. subtle than that? 
let's take a step back. I mean, gravity is such an important factor in plant development. And if you think about evolutionary history, gravity has been with us throughout evolutionary history. And it's, it's a very pervasive and ubiquitous force. When you, when you take gravity away, you actually could really make some very interesting observations. And we've made some other interesting discoveries. And um, I wouldn't say, I actually think, you know, you could actually view gravity as a stress. We take gravity for granted. It's all around us. But um, some people view um, the microgravity condition in low Earth orbit as a stress itself. Other people view it as taking away this constant stress. So actually, plants, um, while they don't show directional growth in microgravity, um, there's conflicting data, but I believe plants actually grow better uh, in the microgravity environment. Oh wow, that's that that is it. it that is unusual to hear that. So, and then, uh, of course, there's also light as well. So, if you, if you're without gravity and without light, so so is light more important then, or is that something also that you? Well, can no, you, you're out? asking a, an excellent question because it actually leads to our lot. You asked about our first experiments, mm. our latest experiments on the International Space Station uh, were um, a, a combination of looking at um, uh, the interaction between um, gravity and light. And gravity and light are two very um, uh, important uh, factors for plant growth and development. One, it, once you take away gravity, like you effectively do in the microgravity environment, what happens is light effects become more pronounced and more important. And we actually, um, in one of our experiments, we discovered some novel uh, sensory, light sensory mechanisms in plants that you can't really see on Earth because they're kind of hidden by the overwhelming force due to gravity. Yeah, so that, I suppose that's analogous to the the blind man whose hearing becomes more sensitive. That's a really good uh thank you i I haven't thought of that but it's actually a pretty good analogy yeah so yeah those those plants are suffering from that yeah Yeah, i'll have to use that in my next public lecture (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) so uh yeah so i mean uh, you you so you went to the you've been to the mere space station with with some of these uh experiments you've done the international space station did you did you are those the two space stations that you've had experiments on or have you we've also had experiments on the shuttle itself okay yeah so, um, yeah, we've used kind of three different platforms. Well, that must be exciting. As a, as, a, as a scientist on those missions, do you get to go down to the launch and treat it like a VIP? Well, yeah, I've been to um, all the launches of my experiments. Um, so it was in the space shuttle era, which, um, you know, there were some day launches and some night launches, and people asked which one was better, and, they're both really cool and, and very different. And the um, the last three experiments were in the post-shuttle era, so they went up on the SpaceX rocket. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And and, so you, and you saw all three of the SpaceX launches as well? Yeah, I've, I've been to, I, I guess I've been to uh, um, five, um, the five shuttle launches with our experiments and the three SpaceX launches. And... With the shuttle, um, I went to several of the landings as well. The SpaceX capsule lands 
off the coast of Baja, California, <laughs> at least in our experiments. Um, so they, um, yeah, we weren't allowed to go there. Yeah, is 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 that is that actually something that's a little bit bothersome when when you have? Because I know that there's there's obviously some some reason to have um, spacecraft that come back down to landing strips, mainly because of the experiments that they contain. Is that is that a problem for you, sort of plant growers? Not, not well, not for our particular type of experiment. So, in general, we got two kinds of data points, or, or, or not two kinds of data from our experiments. Um, in all but one of the experiments, we got back um, telemetry as the experiment was progressing, sort of real time or near real time. In addition, um, we got the samples back. Now they were either frozen um, or, or in some kind of fixative or preserved in some way. So for our, for our experiments, the important thing is that things could be returned. And um, you know, um, right now the only uh, vehicle that returns experiments is SpaceX because that one goes up and down um, the Russians, Japanese, and Europeans have other cargo vessels, but it's a one-way trip. You bring the stuff up, you fill up your vessel with trash, and it burns up in the atmosphere. Yeah, well, the Europeans don't even have ours anymore. <laughs> so, the um, uh, yeah, in terms of the European involvement with your experiments, uh, how how did that play out? What what were, what was the European? Well, I, it's it's really uh, enriched my life. So, first of all. I'll just this last experiment that I did, um, I was the principal investigator uh, from the NASA side, and there was a European principal investigator, Javier Medina from Madrid, Spain. But that project, we actually had collaborators in France, uh, Netherlands, Germany, and Norway. And um, you know, I've met some fabulous people. Um, the space. Um, particularly life sciences community is very small. So um, collaboration is the way to go. And um, on the International Space Station, you know, it's mostly American and Russian. There's the Columbus module from Europe. There's a Japanese module, but essentially the facilities are shared and there are these complex agreements between the agencies and the government. So. Um, you know, we we used um, we we used the system, um, a growth chamber system for plants that was developed by the European Space Agency, and um, there was an agreement that there would be American NASA investigators on those missions as well. So it's been it makes sense professionally because um, we have to collaborate and share our resources. I've also worked with some people from Japan on some things. It's my strongest involvement has been with Europe, but also at a personal level, it's, you know, I have uh, colleagues who became friends all around the world. Pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it is it is really cool, isn't it? I, I the one thing that that always amazes me when I read any scientific paper these days is. The, the the collaboration on an international scale is is truly awe inspiring, you know. It's just like you can't read a paper where it's not involving at least like ten nations and and scientists across the world. And I, I just imagine, yeah, in your field, being that it's quite it, it's smaller, that that that's even more the case. 
with something it is yeah with something like the international space station is has that been has it really delivered on the promise of being this kind of international laboratory and 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 are you worried about where you know it, its future a little bit as a result <laughs> that's a great question um I guess I could approach it at many levels. I mean, I think um, I think at some level, scientists have been um, disappointed with the International Space Station. Um, I, I think um, part of the problem is it takes it's it's a in, in many ways it's a it's a wonderful complex uh, project. Uh, I mean, it does really foster cooperation between. America and Russia, which is important at many levels and, and, and other countries. But I, I think one of the things that they found was um, there's so much crew time of, uh, that's needed just to maintain a complex orbital station that um, uh, scientists want time for science, and there's less time than we had originally thought. Um, you know, right now, I, I think the life of the space station, I don't know the exact status, but I think it's been um, extended to 2026. You know, the, the next thing I'm, I'm kind of uh, focused on is kind of um, moon and, and Mars experiments. And um, I actually think that the space station could help us uh, develop moon and Mars experiments. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, while talking of moon experiments, did you did you look on a little bit envious of the Chinese when they were growing stuff on the moon? Because I, I thought that was a news story that went a little bit under the radar, really. I thought it was monumental, but did, what did you think? What did you think of the... Well, the, I think the... So what is it? The Chang... Um, Chang'e 4, I think, is it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really admire the Chinese for just the whole concept of... Um, going on the far side of the moon and their clever approach for communications. Um, I, I think it was pretty cool. By the way, I also admire other like uh, robotic landers, like the Israeli one, which, um, yeah. which didn't work out, but that was like done on really dirt cheap. I was very, it almost works out. Yeah, I know. When it, when it was at the beginning of the year, it had been my mission to watch, and I was yeah, it was tantalizingly close, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, you know, in terms of the um, the scientific output, well, in terms of plant biology of the Chang lander, I was a little bit disappointed, and I haven't seen all the details. So they had some plants that germinated, but it was unclear to me whether they really germinated on the moon or on the way there. And then I guess their environmental system failed um, and um, uh, the plants were frozen. So, I mean, that was more like a, a tech not, and again, I really admire what they're doing, but it was more a technology demonstration rather than a, you know, I would have liked, I, you know, maybe that's all they could have done at that point, but I guess I would have liked to have seen a more robust experiment. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that's <laughs> maybe the difference between you and me, isn't it? I, I I'm I'm the space nerd who just likes to see the technology, and and you're the scientist who actually wants to well, see some genuine. I, output. I'm a space nerd too, you know. And I I, th I mean, again, I the whole way that they developed that far out satellite to be able to communicate with with the yeah. 
far side. I think they've set themselves up and they set the stage for some really important work. But now I, I I I congratulate them. And you know what what I'm saying is just it's not meant to be super critical. It's just that you know it in some places it was sold as like this you know scientific experiment and I, I I don't see it that way. I think it was an important technology demonstration. Yeah. So yeah that's that's yeah I think that, that I think that's a very good way of putting it. I mean with when it comes to when it comes to you know obviously this this being able to and I'm assuming this is the thrust of your work is the, is is to kind of work out how we can grow biological systems beyond the earth. I I'm right in saying that. Yeah, well that's that's also an excellent question. So I mean the reason NASA and the European Space Agency funds this um I would call what I do very basic plant biology. Some people call it fundamental plant biology. I'm interested in um, cellular mechanisms of gravity and light perception. Sounds a bit arcane, but really um, what that does is if we understand all these mechanisms, it'll allow us to eventually um, develop uh, plants for bioregenerative life support, mainly for um, for producing food, and per, you know, oxygen of course is, is is a byproduct, and this really becomes um, it's not terribly important in low Earth orbit because it's not that far away. But if you go to Mars, you know, it's uh, the minimum mission is like three years, so it's either like pack all your food for three years or there are various scenarios, but ultimately you're going to need to grow plants on Mars. And that's, that's kind of a, a goal. But again, I, uh, to be clear, there are some people who sort of do more direct horticultural experiments of developing species um, cultivars for optimization in space. I don't do that. I, I look at the basic mechanisms. I'm very interested in that. Yeah, so so your work really also could, I, I guess, feed back into just general plant growth on planet Earth as well. You know, it it it, it does because I mean I think again if depending you know if you view gravity as changing the stress parameters, whether it's positive or negative, if you think about what's happening on Earth, there's um, you know we have a growing population. Um, we have uh, desertification around the planet. So it's just getting more stressful for plants. And if we understand some of the parameters that I'm interested in, some of the basic mechanisms, it could help us in perhaps designing plants to grow in stressful environments on Earth. Yeah, no, so I, it, yeah. So there's earth applications. Yeah, I mean well. I, I guess with 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 global warming as well, it's it's presumably yes. it's it's a key technology in that as well. So I've got a question would you have been a um would you have been a good person to go to the cinema or a bad person to go to the cinema with when the Martian was out and he was growing potatoes? Well, <laughs> I love the Martian. I mean I'm a big fan of Matt Damon. Um and um the movie is, you know, it's kind of uh, scientifically, it's not very accurate. <laughs> but I don't really care. I mean, it, it was just, um, it was a 
very well written. And I'll tell you the part I like about it is most people, um, and I've shown this video clip in, in seminars. So this probably most people didn't even notice this part is if you recall the part when he's sitting there, um, he's like snacking and recording stuff and he's figuring out that he's in really bad shape that, you know, I got it, you know, it's going to take him 600 days. I have 200 days of food and, you know, it, it sounds pretty grim. And then he lifts up a, a, a manual. Uh, I don't have a manual here. I'm trying to <laughs> my manual. And he goes, but I am a botanist and I could figure this out. That alone made the whole movie worth it. Cause botanists <laughs> are usually portrayed as maybe justly so as a kind of a bunch of nerds and, and really not, you know, very exciting people. So the genre of the botanist as this adventurer and hero uh, warmed my heart. So that alone was worth it. Yeah. For me. But it was fun movie <laughs> it's funny i grew up with a botanist that was on telev television called david bellamy and he made he made botany fun in this country <laughs> i don't know if you that's know. good <laughs> he was had a, a very funny voice i don't know whether he came became controversial i don't know i can't remember what happened to him but it was he certainly made botany fun so maybe the british do you recall that scene yeah no I, no absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah. no I'd, I'd 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 actually read the book and it's uh, that bits that bits in the book as well and it was yeah it's 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 yeah. uh, well I think it was in the, the book I'm, I I don't remember it not being the, the book is better because there are sort of uh, more crises than the film the film was pretty good but it. I think they cut out two thirds of the crises. Yeah, no, absolutely. Particularly, yeah, the, what, the 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 one about the dust storm and things like that. Yeah, that was. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I was quite glad. I was thinking, oh, actually, I don't. I, this is going to be another hour of dust storms if we if it's if it's going to go into that. But yeah, I, I you know films and books. Um, yeah, it's is so. What what are the big challenges? So if 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 I was to go on a big deep space mission and I was trying to have a greenhouse on a on a spacecraft, what would what would be what would be the big challenges there or the big challenges with, you know, a, a, a colony on Mars or the, or, or on the moon? Yeah. That, that's uh, also a very interesting issue and question. So if you take a step back and, you know, there's a lot of um, interesting books on, on how we could go to Mars, Mars direct and, or sending spacecraft. And I actually always think that, um, good science fiction makes some wonderful predictions. And um, the, the thing that they mostly ignore, and, and even in the public mind, it's sort of like, well, we had this Saturn V, which was this gigantic rocket. So you need a really big, big rocket. And, you know, that has a lot of technological challenges. And maybe we have something pretty close to it, with the SpaceX heavy, um, so that, that big rocket. But one of the things that's not very well understood um, for plants is radiation effects. So even going to, to Mars, we're in deep space, we're out of the protection of, um, of the Earth's um, radiation belts, uh, atmosphere. The International Space Station is, has more radiation than Earth, but it's still kind of shielded. But once you get into deep space, there are all sorts of uh, large particles and a lot more dangers in terms of radiation. And, you know, we could go to Mars and even the astronaut, everyone will, could get there and they could be jellyfish because they're 
their brains have been bombarded with these particles. So um, there's some interest, obviously, NASA and radiation effects on humans or animal systems, but plants have been kind of largely ignored, even by the radiation program. So that is just something um, that is not very well understood. The other thing about radiation effects is so so Mars um, pretty much um, the surface of Mars probably has too much radiation for humans to survive. So some of the um, interesting kind of science fiction, they actually view that most of like the, um, the astronauts who will be going to Mars if they set up a colony will be kind of living underground to protect themselves from radiation. And even for the light, there's probably enough light to grow plants, but if you grow them underground, you know, you could use fiber optics to pipe them in um, uh, underground. So I think the radiation thing is, is, is a huge question. The other question, and this is one I've explored in, in our latest experiments is um, what I call reduced or fractional gravity. So without getting into too much physics, which is a dangerous thing for me is, you know, essentially when astronauts, uh, if you're in low earth orbit, essentially there's microgravity or zero gravity or weightlessness. Um, if you go to the moon or Mars, um, gravity is um, attraction between two objects. So on, on the moon, you know, you weigh one sixth what you do on earth. That's why if you look at those Apollo pictures, those guys are hopping around the surface of the moon with a, um, you know, a hundred kilogram backpack. So try doing that on earth, it'd be pretty hard. And Mars is a bigger planet, so there's three eighths G. And it's unclear, we actually know a lot about plants growing in microgravity, but we don't know very much about reduced gravity. And I've done some work in that area where we um, get on the International Space Station with centrifuges, you could simulate the moon Mars levels of gravity. I think we need to know more about that. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? You have to go to a place where there's where you've got virtually no gravity and put some gravity back in <laughs> with centrifuges. Yeah. yeah, that 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 is interesting. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it, it does. I mean, you talk to anyone about these long distance space trips, and and it seems that radiation is is the killer, isn't it? And well, in literally and and in terms of the scientific knowledge, so. What would be as as if if you were a betting man? What would you say the effect of radiation would be on plants? Probably pretty lethal and deleterious. <laughs> so I, I I think the um, the key is finding ways to mitigate it and and shield against it. You know, I mean, uh, the you know the the thing about that is, um, I mean, there are ways to do it, like with thick lead shields, but that's problematic. So I think some of it might be a material sciences question of what kinds of shielding we could get. I'll tell you, the good news is, in, at least um, in our data on the parameters we studied in terms of plant growth and development, um, the moon level of gravity is very different than uh, plants behave would behave differently on at moon levels of gravity compared to Earth. But interestingly, the Mars level, the 3HG, is almost as good as the 1, 1G on Earth. So um, 
again, this is kind of, it's based on, I try to be careful based on the parameters we studied, um, the uh, gravity per se should not be a problem of growing plants on Mars, which is a pretty exciting result. There's a few other studies on this, but not very much known. It also extends to human physiology um, because, uh, you know, extended time of microgravity is not really good for um, uh, muscle, uh, muscle mass and bone mass. And, and astronauts essentially suffer from accelerated osteoporosis. But the question is, what about on the moon? What about on Mars? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, there's there's quite a few health problems, the the eye problem as well as is, is there so presumably in the same way that they that, that they're spotting all these human health problems. Presumably, the the biological, particularly the plant um, aspects of this, is is less is is lagging behind somewhat because of just the amount of money spent on the research. I I, I would say so. Yeah, and again, I think when. You know, it's a kind of an interesting thing. NASA is fundamentally an engineering organization. So it's like build that big rocket, you know, <laughs> and uh, that's sort of their, and I don't mean this to be hypercritical. It's, it's, it's just the way it has been. Uh, I mean, there are people interested in biology, but, but biology um, is just historically has been much less important uh, I mean, the main biological aspects they're interested in is crew health and, you know, mitigation of, of some of the factors. But again, I think plants are going to be part of the story here. And um, the, I've been fortunate. I've, I've had um, pretty good levels of funding from NASA, but it's, they don't really spend enough on the plants, but I'm biased. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's definitely it's something that I've been critical myself about things like you know the the SpaceX and the Elon Musk. We're going to Mars, and like they they just, he you know Musk is in particularly bad for it as well. He, he, literally no consideration for the biological mass that has well, to go I, to Mars to actually make it work. I I agree. I mean, I admire Musk because of the whole. Um, what he's done with SpaceX and its kind of visionary approach. But you're absolutely right. I, this, I say the same thing as, I mean, I, I guess, you know, that's not probably not his job is to focus on, on uh, other factors uh, going. I mean, he's focused on that big rocket and that's important. But um, if we have the big rocket again, you know, we, we could end up there and we could be jellyfish and that's not going to, People will be in bad shape physically and, and mentally, and that's not a good. That's not going to work. Yeah. So, if you if we if you were to design the the perfect experiment now, if 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 NASA said right, we're going to give you an unlimited budget next year, <laughs> <laughs> what 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 would you go off and do? What would you what what would you what experiment would you absolutely love to run right now? <sighs> Because I've, uh, I've got a, unlimited money, by the way. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so that's an interesting question. So I, I mean, I would try to find a way to combine these two factors: so the reduced gravity levels and the radiation. Because right now we have separate experiments. You know, there's a small group that have done these reduced 
for fractional gravity experiments, and there's a small group that's done radiation experiments. What they do is they um, they simulate different kinds of radiation. They do it at Brookhaven National Lab is one place. NASA also has this um, uh, Antarctic balloon program, <laughs> which these balloons go leave from Antarctica and they reach an altitude where it's pretty, um, the, the temperature is, is like Mars and there are, there are higher radiation effects, but not Martian levels. So I think if we could combine those two things, which isn't an easy thing to do, um, it would require some new expensive instrumentation for the International Space Station. I think we could make some, some progress on that. Of, of, you know, we have, again, some glimpse of the two separate parameters, but how these parameters interact could really have a, a very profound effect. Yeah. I mean, I, it just, the, the way you've painted it makes me realize, obviously, you know, sort of heading out to Mars now and thinking you could have plants growing on, on, on like a spacecraft on the way there is, is unthinkable, isn't it? Because you, 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 we, we just don't know what the effect in that environment would be. Well, I think you could grow some plants. Um, it, it, it's just, um, you know, it's probably not going to be enough for bioregenerative purposes. Um, and then when you get to Mars, right now, there isn't a really great plan for, um, I mean, there some people are thinking about this. I have some colleagues, some NASA scientists who really work on these things more directly, but there really isn't a good plan from, from what I could tell. So if we had the Elon Rust, Musk produces the rocket tomorrow, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to ask you just a, a couple more questions and then I'll let you go because sure. I'm, I'm sure you're a super busy man if you were to bring back someone from the past some, uh, you know a, de a dead person if you to bring them back a hero of yours that you would like to show your work to who, who would it be is there someone specifically that you kind of look up to as a, as, a, as a hero in your field or maybe not even in your field. I don't know. Well, this one might sound like a strange one. Charles Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> <So>, doesn't <laughs> sound that strange. Well, so Darwin, you know, he's, he, um, he was an incredible guy. Of course, he's known for evolution, but one of his books, uh, he had two botanical books. One of the books, which I love, is called The Power of Movement in Plants. It's one of his lesser known books. And he described all these um, very detailed observations um, about plant behavior toward gravity and light. And he made a very interesting prediction that um, was actually proved that uh, it wasn't proved until a space shuttle experiment, <laughs> which is oh, wow. quite amazing. So there's a, um, I didn't talk about this. So there's a phenomenon in plants called circumnutation. And Darwin was um, uh, obsessed with circummutation. He kind of overstated it. He thought circummutation was responsible for almost everything. But basically, when a plant grows, even if it grows, quote, straight, it never really grows straight. It grows kind of around a helical axis. I know your, your listeners can't see my finger there, but... Um, <laughs> So um, that, they'll get it. Yeah. yeah. 
but but this happens in uh, plant organs. I mean, it's in some things it's very obvious, like things like morning glory or grapes. There's a circumnutation, and they'll wrap around, you know, a fence or or a post or something. But um, there's a big debate as to whether um, circumnutation is an endogenous feature of plants, just built in, or is it a gravity-dependent phenomenon? And um, in, I think this was an early experiment in the 1990s. Um, Darwin thought it was an endogenous phenomenon, and other people thought, no, it's dependent on gravity. So they did some experiments on the space shuttle, and Darwin was right. <laughs> so I'd love to talk to him about his observations about um, uh, plant gravity and, and and light sensing. Yeah. Well, yeah. But that that's that's a that's a fantastic insight. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I didn't know anything about that side of Darwin. I mean, obviously, I knew he's. I knew he did all those botanical voyages on the Beagle and things like that. But yeah, yeah, what, what a great scientist, well, the, basically. The nice thing for me is, you know, most of the, you know, there's some really great classical botanical texts in the late 90s. Most of them are in German, but of course, Power of Movement in Plants is in English. So um, I encourage you to go out and get a, a copy and immediately devour it. Yep. So it's my bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I, I think I, I think I might. It, may, it might be something that both my, myself and my wife can enjoy because she she likes a like a like a true English person. She's very much into gardening, <laughs> which is right. <laughs> which I yeah. which I know isn't such a bigger bigger hobby in the in the in elsewhere. I I I understand that the, the British are a little bit obsessed with our gardens. But uh, what, what well, about yourself? And- Have you got? Do you keep yourself in a nice garden? In North do, Carolina, do me? yeah. <laughs> no, I'm. I'm. Well, we have some some plants, but I'm better growing them in space than on the ground. I usually <laughs> kill yeah. them. My wife is much better. Um, the uh, you know gardening is a great thing though because you can really make some. There's all sort like this. You know this um, circumnutation. I mean, you could um, you could actually really um, see it in some of the plants. Mm. You know. Um, the other funny story about that is, you know, um, so sunflowers are really good at um, circumnutation. Even you could just do an experiment, grow the little seedlings. And if you look every half hour, you'll see them moving. The, the funniest thing is cut tulips also circumnutate. And I always think about these um, these artists struggling with alcoholism and stuff doing these still lights and the plants really were moving you know, that's maybe a terrible uh, thing to say but you can you know it's you could study circumnutation with cut tulips or um it's present in every plant but some plant groups it's more um obvious and like the the sunflower seedlings are phenomenal and um that's what they used actually in one of the space experiments yeah well, we, we there was a craze, wasn't there, a few years ago of dancing sunflowers that that yeah. did that thing to music. So that was obviously where it's from. Circumnutation. I shall try and remember the phrase. <laughs> That's brilliant. I've got one last question that you may or may not be able to answer because I've sprung this on you. Is the um, uh, we have a space song spl- uh, playlist? Is there a particular space related song that you ever sort of listen to? In or, or are you a music person? Oh, I have person? a good one. Um, well. It's it's from I'm a big fan of theater, so it's from Wicked. 
uh, oh, right, defying okay. gravity. Oh, okay, brilliant. Yeah, well, we haven't got. Yeah, that. I think at the end of of Act One, um, you know, in the shuttle era, um, they had this. Uh, they did this big thing about um, the wake up songs for the crew, mm-hmm. and they try to, you know, like if some crew members from Texas, they'd have some Texas song or. But they have played Defying Gravity a couple of times. Um, the crew tells me they're always awake by the time they play the song. But um, yeah, I, I like that one a lot. That was an easy one. That well, that's brilliant. That's brilliant because it's not on the list, and you're the first person to come up with it. So that that's that's awesome. Well, thank you, thank you very much for your for, for the time. There's there's some really cool things in there that that i am going to go out and get that darwin book as well (laughs) (laughs) well well, thank you for uh um your interest i think the i think the space program's uh you know a wonderful wonderful thing in many ways um you know there's always this debate of it's been with nasa certainly from the beginning but you know why should we waste this money on space when we have problems on earth well we're always going to have problems on earth. And I, I really do think space is part of our exploration and um, it may sound a bit corny, but our, our human destiny, I think there's a real intrinsic uh, desire to, to know more about um, what's beyond us. And, you know, there's certainly many other topics like um, life on other planets. And I'm sure that, um, some of our other planets in the solar system, either they probably currently have life. I think there's something in the seas of Europa, for instance. Mm. Uh, and this is, you know, I have obviously no evidence, but uh, I, I think that's also an important question is um, we're pretty sure there's life out there, but we don't know it for sure. So um, I've been very fortunate because I have my, my personal interest and it stemmed from my childhood. And uh, I've been fortunate that I've been able to actually contribute in a small way to some of these things. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive! There you go, Jamie. What a lovely chat. Fan Dabby Dozer. Incredible stuff. Lovely guy. Um, Brilliant. Awesome. Another banger. And great song choice. Yeah, great song choice and great choice of of scientists to bring back. Jamie. Yes. If people have enjoyed the Interplanetary Podcast, what, what do you oh, think yeah. what, what do you think they should do? There is one area of the internet that you need to be if you're cool, and that's www.interplanetary.org.uk. Um you'll find everything there. We bang on about it every week, but we'd love to thank our patrons because you make our world go round. Even if some of you are black holes, you don't suck us in and kill us. Don't forget you can now quickly pop over to YouTube if you want to stick it on your telly. Jamie, (laughs) what are you doing this weekend? I've got some DIY to do at my house. I'm putting some wooden flooring down in the lounge and the hallway. Uh, So very exciting. What about yourself, Matt? Um, I do have DIY to do, but I've also got lots of college work to do. I might, oh. I might do some painting in the hall. I think I've got lots of white walls to be painted, but I think Beautiful. I'm, but I, I am, I've got my telescope out now, so I might be spending a few late nights 
Uh, I was going to say, old, get old... yourself outside. Oh, I have to shout out to Justin Young, our, our one of our Uber patrons. Oh, uh, yes. Because he, he posted some of the his astrophotography that he's been doing, and it's absolutely stunning. I'm, I'm, I'm super jealous. Uh, I'm jealous of his telescope. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty damn good. Justin, you're a ledge. Keep keep sending them. Yeah. So from Tasmania as well. That that's cool, isn't it? So. Uh, oh wow, Tassie. Ta- oh, Tasman. So that's it, Jamie. That's it, Jamie. This is nice and easy. That's bye, it. Bye, We've bye, done a podcast. Bye. So see you next week for more space fun and games. <laughs> bye. bye.